Amen. Thank you, Brigham, for leading us. And Jeff, where did Jeff go? Did he leave? I thought you bailed, man. I love you, brother. Um, I'm so thankful to God for you. So thank you for that kind introduction. It's an honor to be with you. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to John 14, the title of my sermon is Untroubled. I don't know if you came in with a heavy heart, um, but even if you're rejoicing today, we rejoice with you, and we always have something to rejoice for. But as my mom told me growing up, she would often say to me, and I'll edit her words, my mom's a feisty Italian woman, so she would say, um, anytime things were difficult, she would say, life stinks, that's the part I edited, life stinks, what are you going to do about it? And uh, that was her response when things were tough. And then she would follow that up with, but what you do about it is who you are. Life stinks, what are you going to do about it? But what you do about it is who you are. As Christians, what we do about it in hard times is we look to Jesus and we recognize that that doesn't immediately make life easy. Um, But at the end of the day, that's what we're holding on to. Better yet, it's what's holding on to us. So I hope that in this text you'll be encouraged today, whether you're rejoicing today or whether your heart might be heavy, we all recognize that there will be difficult times in life. And Jesus' words to you are, don't let your hearts be troubled. John 14, verse 1, let me read a few verses and then pray for our time in the word together. Jesus speaking, verse 1, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help our hearts to, um, as we look at your word through the work of your spirit, that our hearts would comprehend just the significance of these words, that Jesus will return for us, that we might be with him. Lord, we recognize that this is indeed good reason for our hearts not to be troubled. You've not left us as orphans, but you will, will return for us. So God, I pray that we could, at some level, sense the security that's found in these words. Lord, if there's someone here today who does, has never had a life-transforming encounter with Jesus, God, I pray that today, through the work of your Spirit, that they might see, for the first time, the beauty and the significance of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I chose the title um, Untroubled because twice in this chapter, at the beginning and then towards the end, Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled in verses 1 and verse 27. It's indeed the theme of this chapter. And it's remarkable, um, namely for what precedes it. If you were to read John 13 and then compare it to the same event in other Gospels, you would see that what precedes Jesus saying, don't let your hearts be troubled, is that he's telling the disciples he's about to be taken and killed. And he tells them not only is he going to be taken and killed, but that all of them will abandon him. 
So he tells the disciples, you'll all abandon me. And not only that, there will be one who will betray him. Of course, Judas betrays him. And then there will be another still um, who will deny him, Peter. So after telling them, you'll all abandon me, one will betray me and another will deny me, he immediately says these words to them in verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Isn't that remarkable? He says, look, you're all going to leave me. You're going to betray me. You're going to deny me. And he says, but don't let your heart be troubled. To me, I wish we could, you know, kind of all corporately take a step back and just let this soak in for a moment. How significant is the love of Jesus? How gentle is Jesus? There's a story about a soldier, uh, or a, a chaplain rather, um, who was a student of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. And uh, this student of Martin Luther ministered to soldiers, and on one occasion was ministering to a soldier who was um, breathing his last breath, knowing he's about to die. And he, in kind of fear and anxiety, said to the chaplain, um, Is God like Jesus? Is God like Jesus? And I think we can all understand what he's getting at. We, what we learn of Jesus is that he's gentle and kind and that he gravitates towards those who are rejected in the culture and marginalized and don't have a voice. That Jesus is this kind, winsome, amazing figure and he wanted to know in the next minutes he would face God, is God like Jesus? Well, this is what Jesus is like having just told his disciples that they would all betray him, deny him, and abandon him, he's worried about the state of their heart. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. This is what Jesus is like, and the good news this morning is this is what God is like. We're going to see that in this chapter. Jesus will say, if you've seen me, you've seen God. I don't know about you, but I'm, I am captivated by the figure of Jesus in the New Testament. If God is like Jesus, then I want in. If this is what God is like, then I want to be a follower of God. And of course, as you know, I am. I wouldn't be preaching if I'm not. But this is remarkable. I think it's best said by the medieval scholar Andy Minio. He's actually a Christian hip-hop artist. Any hip-hop fans? So Andy Minio has some bars or some lines in one of his songs, and it really is a reflection of this passage, I think. He says, and I quote, kind of like this, what love is this to send his own, to die for sin and take us home? Got me feeling good. Forget my feelings when you heard a story about that hero dying for them villains. I love that line because this is a remarkable love that the hero would die for the villains. Jesus tells them, don't let your hearts be troubled. There's another reason I love this chapter. It could be divided easily into three conversations. John's gospel is my favorite gospel. It's kind of the rogue gospel. The other gospels are lumped together and they're called the synoptic gospels because they have a similar vision, hence the term synoptic. And they're very similar if you read them. In fact, there are are book studies you could get that put those three gospels together and show their similarities and the places where they at times deviate one, one from another. John's gospel is just in a category all into its own. John's gospel is kind of the rogue gospel and he's just marching to his own beat 
and I appreciate that about John's gospel. If you read through John's gospel, you'll see that Jesus has been doing a lot of teaching and instructing in the previous chapters leading up to chapter 14. When he gets to chapter 14, it's almost as if Jesus has said, all right, any questions? And it's as if he's opened the floor for Q&A. I often get the opportunity to travel and to uh, speak in different environments and teach on apologetics. Most recently, I spoke at Eastern Kentucky University in Richmond, Kentucky, and I preached the very next day on this chapter. Um, And it was remarkable to me, the questions that are asked in this chapter are almost to, to the letter the same kind of questions that we're still asking today. You could divide this chapter around conversations between Jesus and Thomas and Philip and then Judas. By the way, it's not that Judas. This is a different Judas, which is a really unfortunate name if you're one of the 12 disciples and you just happen to be that other Judas. But nonetheless, Thomas asked the question, is there a way in verse 5? Philip asked the question, what is God like? in verse 8. And these are kind of my paraphrase of the questions that are being asked. And then finally, Judas, not Iscariot, in verse 22, asks, how can we know God? Jesus tells them that he's going to be with the Father. Um, That's an event that we call the um, ascension. And it's a beautiful, wonderful event that is almost completely ignored in the modern church. Throughout the history of the church, the ascension of Jesus is celebrated, it's valued, it's focused on for this main reason that the entire Bible is is filled with humanity being exiled from God's presence, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve who were created to dwell in God's presence. God would come and meet with them regularly when they sinned and rebelled against God. They're exiled from the Garden. And the rest of the Bible, people are, are, are no longer bodily living in God's presence. Now, Paul will say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that's a beautiful, wonderful reality that the moment we die, we're with God, but we're not bodily with God. Paul says we even then we long and groan to be clothed with an immortal body. So in the Bible, the only time you see humanity dwelling with God is in Genesis 1 and 2, and then at the ascension. When Jesus, who is the word become flesh, is accepted into the Father's presence, that is a picture, beloved, that Eden is back in business. That again, God is dwelling bodily with humanity. And Jesus says, I'm preparing a way and I'm going to come that you may be with me. What was lost is in Eden is being restored in the work of Jesus. And not even just Eden, but something somehow, unthinkably, immeasurably better. <laughs> that what was lost is not only going to be restored, but Jesus is going to allow us to live in God's presence and a new creation. And he tells them, you know the way. And I love what Thomas does. Thomas is kind of an obscure disciple who only makes a couple cameo appearances in the gospel. And here Thomas responds in verse 5. Jesus says, I'm going away. You know the way. And Thomas goes, no, actually I don't. (laughs) Look at verse 5. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I appreciate Thomas who often will speak his doubts, who will speak his mind, And Jesus responds to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
You've probably heard that verse quoted often. This is the context it's in. Jesus says, I'm going away. You know the way. Thomas says, no, I don't. And Jesus says, yes, you know the way because you know me. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Is there a way, Thomas is asking, and Jesus says, yes, there is a way, and there's only one way, and it's Jesus. Now, this is what sets Christians apart, Bible-believing Christians apart, from a lot of our secular friends and even our kind of um, syncretistic friends or pluralistic friends that want there to be many ways to God and for us to validate every kind of way of seeing the world in reality. Um, What we have to recognize here in a passage like this, in a moment like we live in today, is that it is above our pay grade to edit Jesus' words. So while we might feel the tension and the pull and the, the desire to be empathetic and caring and somehow make a way for there to be a way to know God apart from Jesus, I would just humbly submit to you, that's not within your purview. That's above your pay grade. Furthermore, this is not an idea Christians came up with. My pastor in our church in Ohio loves to tell a story um, that's kind of a confession of his, of how he had shared the gospel with a young man um, on, on occasion when he was studying in England, and the young man said to him, he said, so you're telling me that Jesus is the only way to God. And if I don't believe in Jesus, I can't have a relationship with God. I can't have the forgiveness of sin. I can't have the promise of eternal life. That's what you're telling me. And my pastor said to this day, it haunts him, that he, he said the, he gave the wrong response. He said to the man, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Immediately, days following, he he began to have a sense of remorse for saying that. Not because he didn't believe it to be true, but he wished he could go back and find the man and tell him, that's not what I'm saying. That's what Jesus said. This is Jesus' authority. And if, to use a, a kind of an old analogy that you may have heard before, but I think it's helpful, if you're in a burning building, and every exit is blocked, save for one, it's not unloving to tell people there's one way out. We live in a day when we will be labeled as narrow-minded, as dogmatic, as jerks, for saying there's one way. It can only be a loving thing if it's true. But if it is true, the most loving thing you could do is to point them to the one way of escape. One of my best friends from childhood is, um, is a committed atheist, and we stay in contact and sometimes make fun of each other. And, um, and when, on occasion, when we're able to be in an area near each other, um, have a meal together. And, uh, and I think that's a glorious thing, that we should all have friendships that aren't contingent upon the other person becoming a Christian. You know, once people figure out that they're a project, I don't know about you, I don't want to be anyone's project. And if your friends discover that you're only friends with them to see them become a Christian, um, then they probably won't want to be your friends. And so he's a friend like that. And on one occasion, he was making fun of me for believing that Jesus is the only way. And he said, how do you live with yourself? It's like so narrow-minded and dogmatic. Um, How do you sleep at night, essentially? 
And I thought because he was making fun of me, I would have a bit of fun back at him. So I said to him, and we'll just call him Scott. I said, well, Scott, um, I'm a Christian, as you know, and Christianity is still the world's largest religion based on studies that study religiosity uh, globally. Still the world's largest religion. Um, So if you're calling me narrow Minded, I'm actually a part of the world's largest religion still. That doesn't prove it's true, but that is a demonstrable fact. Statistically, it's the world's largest religion. Um, Furthermore, I believe that there's one God. That's a belief that's shared in common with Jews and Muslims both. It's called monotheism, a belief that there's one God. Now, there's significant differences between me and a Jewish friend or a Muslim friend, but nonetheless, we share in common a belief that there's one God. Beyond that, the vast majority of people breathing air right now on the planet and who've ever breathed air on our planet believe, the vast majority of them, believe that there's something other than just nature. There's something that they worship, whether it's an Eastern religion that they believe the universe itself is somehow divine. There's, most people believe that there's something more than just a material universe, with the exception of my friend Scott. I said, Scott, the vast majority of humanity stands on the other side of your position. So while I believe Jesus is the only way, I share in common a belief that there's one God with the the large monotheistic religions, and with the vast majority of humanity, I share a belief that there's something more than nature. However, my friend Scott is a part of a small percentage of people who believe that everybody else is wrong. So who's narrow-minded? Who's being dogmatic? Now, the point really isn't which view is the most inclusive is true or the least exclusive is true. But what I want to point out is this. Every belief system at some point becomes exclusive. So if you say that all religions lead to God, the people you're excluding are the adherents to the religions, religious traditions who recognize they're making mutually exclusive truth claims. The most loving thing we could do is to point people to the one way of escape if it's true. And if Jesus rose from the dead, his claim to be the only way to God is validated. It's not unloving to say Jesus is the only way. And you don't have, you don't have the um, latitude to change Jesus' words. Is there a way? Jesus says, yes, I am the way. The second question, Philip asked, what is God like? It's not exactly how he words it, but that's my paraphrase. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, verse 8, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you don't know me? Philip, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Skip down to verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it does not see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Philip asked to see God, and Jesus explains to Philip what God is like, and he explains that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. 
You've seen God because you've seen the Son, and the Father's going to send you another counselor, the Spirit. You will know God because the Spirit will be at work in you, not only with you, but the Spirit will be in you. Christians have for 2,000 years unpacked the teachings like this with the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery that's beyond our ability to fully rationally understand. We often try and learn new material by analogy, right? Like we learn something new and go, oh, it's kind of like this. And we may have a reference point and we're able to make sense of it. The problem with God is there's only one of him. So anytime we try and make an analogy, we limit, we somehow get off track. In fact, some of the great heresies of the Christian church have grown out of people trying to make an analogy for, um, for God. Philip wants to know what God, God is like, and Jesus tells him that God is Father, that God is Son, and God is Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is a key to unlocking the mystery of who God is. In speaking recently at Eastern Kentucky University, we did a time of Q&A, and one student raised her hand and said, um, can you explain for us the Trinity? And I said, no. <laughs> um, what we can say is the boundaries that, that the Bible gives us for talking about God. That doesn't mean I can explain what's inside the boundaries. How does the Trinity work? It's a mystery, but are you surprised that there are things about God that you can't comprehend? C.S. Lewis once said, to quote C.S. Lewis again, he once said that Christians believe God has told us how to talk about him. Jesus is showing Philip that the mystery of God is that if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. If you've seen the Spirit, you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. The, there are three ways to think about the doctrine of the Trinity, three simple statements that I think summarize it well. I guess it's fitting that there are three. And here they are. There's one God. He exists eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. And each person is fully God. There's one God. He exists eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit, and each person is fully God. That is, I think, an accurate way to summarize what the Bible teaches about God as a trinity. That doesn't mean we understand how it works, but it's a mystery that has boundaries. We could study the contours of the mystery even if we can't fully comprehend the mystery. The doctrine of the trinity is a key that unlocks passages like this. Try and make sense of a passage like this without the doctrine of the Trinity. It just doesn't make sense. Jesus' words make little sense without us thinking about the entire counsel of Scripture, which shows us there's one God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Each person is fully God. The third conversation with Judas. He essentially asks, how can we know God? Verse 22. Judas, and then John helpfully puts in parentheses, parenthetically, not Iscariot. Just go by a nickname or something, you know, or, or get a name change, I, you know. How unfortunate, again. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? How is it that the followers of Jesus would have a relationship with God that's different from the rest of the world who don't believe in Jesus? Verse 23, Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it's from the father who sent me. 
I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. How can we know God? Jesus tells him the Spirit is coming, and the Spirit will remind you of who God is. It's through the work of the Spirit that you'll know God. Through believing in Jesus and through the work of the Spirit, um, you'll understand the triune God. You'll have a relationship with God. I had a student at that same event um, not long ago who said, if you could say one thing to an atheist, what would you say to him? And the Lord's allowed me to have some relationships with with some um, secular friends over the years, and I've said a lot of things to them, and they've said a lot of things to me. And, uh, you know, it's hard to boil it down to one thing. I think that what people are looking for is a silver bullet. What's the one challenge or what the one argument that just really does the job? So my answer, and you may or may not like this, my answer to that student was this. If I have one thing to say to an atheist, it would be to invite them to read the Gospel of John. Because I recognize that my arguments aren't going to fully convince anyone. In fact, most of our decisions are are not rational anyways. Brigham and I were talking about this. If we were more rational, if all of our decisions were rational, McDonald's would be out of business. Right, like we, we make decisions for all kinds of reasons and our rationality is a part of who we are, but it, it's not even in most of our decisions the largest part of who we are. And so my arguments aren't going to be able to convince them. So I would just say I would invite them to read John's gospel and maybe if they're willing, you can see I'm being kind of cheeky here. If you're willing, um, pray a prayer like this. And I would encourage you if you don't believe, if you're not a believer, um, This is my challenge to you too. Read John's gospel. The Bible has influenced Western culture more than any other work of literature, so you should be familiar with it. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, put it this way. He said, it's intellectually irresponsible to ignore Jesus. He's made too big of a difference. Every person should have some informed opinion about Jesus. So read John's gospel, and if you're willing, pray a prayer like this. God, if you do exist, I'm not sure if you do, Help me to understand what I read. And then read John's gospel. And when you read, just pray that prayer. Now, I tell them that prayer is not a magic incantation. It won't turn you into a newt or a frog or a Christian. Um, And if there is no God and this is just a book, what do you have to fear? But if there is a God and his spirit works in the, the hearts and minds of humanity, pointing them to Jesus, then perhaps as the apostle, uh, or as Jesus describes in John 3, the spirit is like the wind. You can't control it. Um, It does whatever it wants. It goes wherever it wants. Perhaps as they read the gospel of John, the spirit like the wind will blow through and open their eyes. The one argument against which no counter argument can ever hope to stand is the testimony of the spirit. The only argument against which there is no compelling counterargument is the work of the Spirit. And that sounds crazy if you've never experienced it. But if you experience it, there's nothing that could stand against it. If I've learned anything, I've spoken at youth camps for 20 years now. If I've learned anything over these last two decades, it's this. You can't control the work of God. And second, we try to, right? 
with our, you know, all you can eat pizza buffets and our fog machines. And I'm for all of that, you know, all of the fun. But you can't control it. Here's the other thing I've learned. You can't stop it. You can't control it. You can't stop it. So I invite them to read John's gospel. How can we know God? It's through the work of the Spirit. I think that these three questions are pointing at these underlying human desires for place and person. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. For every desire, every physical desire we have, there's some counterpart we desire. We're hungry, there's food. We're tired, there's sleep. Uh, We desire intimacy and there's relationships and marriage. For every physical desire, there's a counterpart. But Lewis said there seems to be a a non-physical desire that humanity is plagued with. It's not unique to Christians. It's not unique to America. It's a universal longing. And that desire must be pointing somewhere. A a philosopher named Peter Crave, who teaches at Boston University, took Lewis's statement and broke it down into three points. Number one, every natural innate desire in us corresponds to some real object that can satisfy it. But there exists in us a desire which nothing in time, nothing on earth, and no creature can satisfy. Therefore, there must exist something more than time, earth, and creatures which can satisfy this desire. We may try to suppress it and we may try to silence it, but we can't ignore it. We are longing for person and place. And what Jesus is showing his disciples is that these longings and these desires are pointing somewhere. They're pointing to someone. And there's only one who can fulfill this desire, and it's Jesus. However, Lewis also noted that human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find anything other than God, which will make him happy. These longings are pointing us to God, and yet we would rather be distracted by food and pleasure, and yet we're reminded over and over and over again these things will never satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Beneath all these questions are these deep human longings for person and place. You don't have to dig far into our history in terms of of humanity or even in terms of America to, to find evidence of these longings. For example, it was during the Civil War that we put in God We Trust on our coins. If things get crazy, we turn to God. Why is that? Why is it that churches were filled the Sunday immediately following 9-11? Do you remember that when everybody showed up at church? What is it about us that when things are uncertain or we're scared, we turn to God? That statement was added to paper currency during the war in Vietnam. The Pledge of Allegiance originally did not include the statement, one nation under God. It was added during a time of national uncertainty over the threat of communism known as the Red Scare. And it was during that time of civil unrest that we added to the Pledge of Allegiance that we are one nation under God. What is it about us that when we get scared, we turn to God? I think there are vulnerable moments when we expo- expose the true longings 
of our heart. We're longing to know God. And sometimes it takes catastrophe. Sometimes it takes uncertainty. But regardless of the circumstances that bring it about, it reminds us that we were made to know God. And time and time again, we demonstrate this deep longing to know God, even our fictional saviors. We're all born in times of uncertainty and civil unrest. For example, and that's, that's not the original Superman, by the way. Um, the original Superman, he was an, an evil scientist. I, Google it later. Um, it was based off of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's idea of an ubermensch, um, which is the Superman. He was a bad guy. And they found that he marketed better if he had a cape and was a good guy and wore his underwear outside his pants. So, but Batman, <laughs> I don't know why they did that. So, Batman, Superman, and Captain America were all products of the Great Depression and World War II. Here's the point I would want to make. Let these longings and let the heartache point you to God. Let them point you to God. Even as Christians, um, your longing for person will never be fully satisfied in, apart from Jesus. I've been married 21 years, and I love my wife, and I think she's the greatest person I know. But even with an intimate, wonderful marriage, we recognize people can't satisfy this deep longing to know God. If you cut us, we bleed transcendent hope. When backed into a corner, we turn to God. So I would encourage you, let this longing for person and place point you to God, even in your heartache and even in your disappointment. Be reminded that God is real and that you can have a relationship with him through Jesus. I'm gonna end in my final minute. <laughs> have two minutes? Okay. Three. <laughs> I'm going to give you in rapid fire. So if you're a note taker, don't hurt yourself. In rapid fire, 10 reasons to not be troubled. Here they are. Number one, we have room in God's presence. Jesus told them he was going to prepare space for them in God's presence. There's room for you in the Father's presence. You may spend your entire life trying to find a place. Let that longing point you to God. There is a place for you, and it's where you were created to be in the presence of the Father. We have room in God's presence. Number two, we will one day see Jesus. Jesus told them that he's going away, but he will return for them. One day we will see Jesus. It sounds cliche, it sounds bumper sticker, Christian t-shirt kind of thing, but it's the reality that we are hanging on to that one day the eastern sky will split open and the Son of God will return for his own. We will see Jesus. Whatever is going on today, hold on to that. And again, it's what holds on to us. We can know God. Jesus told the disciples that through the work of the Spirit that they could know God. Today, if you don't have a relationship with God, if you've never had a life-transforming encounter with Jesus, today you can know God. You can believe the gospel and know God. Number four, we can serve God. Jesus told his disciples, remarkably, you'll do even greater things than I have done. We have the opportunity to be salt and light in the world and to make a profound difference for God's glory in pointing people to Jesus and meeting real needs, physical needs, and also meeting spiritual needs and pointing people to God who will forgive them and love them and who has room for them. 
We could talk to God. Jesus tells them, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We have the opportunity, as we've done throughout the service today, to talk to God, and he listens. I'm blown away, Adam, as I read through the Psalms. The psalmist never gets over the fact that God hears his prayers, just over and over again. We can talk to God. Number six, we have the Holy Spirit. We have God not only with us, but as Jesus told his disciples, we have the Holy Spirit in us. Number seven, we have the peace of Jesus. Look at verse 27. Jesus told them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And this next line is awesome. He said, I do not give to you as the world gives. Aren't you thankful? There's something that nothing in this world can offer us, and it's a peace, and you can't find it. Jesus is telling them, you will not find this in this world. I'm not giving to you as the world gives. The world overpromises and underdelivers. The world gives us bait and switch, a promise of happiness, and it leaves us with emptiness and despair. To quote Pastor Rick Holland, who says, describes this as juicy fruit bubble gum. The world offers us juicy fruit bubble gum, the juiciest gum in all of gumdom. You put it in your mouth and there's an explosion of flavor. And after 30 seconds, it tastes like wet cardboard. (laughs) And you're left with only regret. (laughs) That's what sin is like. That's what trying to find satisfaction in this world is like. Jesus said, that's not how I give peace. As a Christian, we recognize that we have a peace that simply doesn't make sense. In fact, it's described in the Bible as a peace that surpasses understanding. And that's what that means. It doesn't make sense. How do you have peace when you've just lost a child? How do you have a peace when you've just been abandoned by a spouse? How do you have peace when you're dealing with children who may not be walking with the Lord? How do you have peace when you have a terminal disease? How do you have peace when you have financial uncertainty? It doesn't make sense, but with Jesus, we have peace. We don't always feel it perfectly. We don't always project it perfectly, but we know if you're a Christian that you have a peace and it's like nothing this world could ever give you. Number eight, we believe Throughout the chapter, over and over again, we see that what's a theme in John's gospel is to believe. Today, we shouldn't be, have troubled hearts because by God's grace, we believe. Number nine, we're not orphans. Verse 18, Jesus says, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. You'll sometimes feel like orphans. It's going to look as though you've been abandoned by God. Where is your God now? We feel like orphans at times, but we know that we're not orphaned by God because Jesus is coming back for us. Don't have a troubled heart because you're not an orphan. And then finally, we are not defined by this world. Let me read verse 30 in my last two and a half minutes. (laughs) That just, you know, they, they keep going. They've not started yet. They're starting in a couple minutes. Jesus tells his disciples, I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world, which is a a title for Satan, the ruler of this world is coming. Then Jesus says, he has no dominion over me. If we're in Jesus, and if the ruler of this world has no dominion over Jesus, then the ruler of this world has no dominion over us. We are not defined by this world 
To close out the chapter, let's read the last verse. Verse 31. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. And then this chapter that's about Jesus making room for us in the Father's presence, promising to return for us, comforting our hearts. This beautiful chapter ends with these words. Rise. Let us go from here. I know what these words mean in their context. Jesus is saying, get up, let's go. But the inner poet in me wants these words to dance just a little bit before we leave the chapter. In a chapter that's about Jesus going to prepare a room for us, returning to claim us as his own that we might be with him. I think it's appropriate that this chapter ends with the words, rise, let us go from here. Beloved, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus once spoke these words to his disciples, and please hear me, one day he'll speak them to us. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful and true, and your word is powerful and living, and I pray that your spirit would apply these words to our hearts. God, where there's anxiety and uncertainty, I pray that there could be a peace that just doesn't make sense, that's even palpable, something that just is so immediately certain in their hearts as a work of the Spirit. I pray that you would apply that peace. Lord, if there's a person who doesn't know you, I pray that your Spirit, like the wind, would blow through this room and open their eyes to see. And God, we praise you above all things because you are worthy of all glory and power and honor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.